Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. We're joined by producer Matt's horror movie night co-host Scott Roger to discuss the sound of 1999 that was lit my own worst enemy. Depending on what radio station you listened to in the late 90s and early 2000s, you either have no problem at all with us discussing lit or you're screaming at us, but what about miserable? We get into it and so much more when we're trying to decide if they brought the thunder or if they should have forgotten the song they wrote when they were drunk. So Scott, right off the bat, was there a particular reason why you chose My Own Worst Enemy by Lit? I guess before I even ask that, there might be a few people out there that are outraged that we're calling this a one-hit wonder, but I would agree this is a one-hit wonder. I'm sure you would agree too. You chose it. (laughs) (laughs) Hell no, dude. I absolutely do not agree that it was a one-hit wonder because I was shocked when I found out that it was technically the only lit song that charted high enough to even be considered for one-hit thunder. So you chose this because you're a you're a lit head. I mean, if that's such a thing, fuck yeah. <laughs> lit is an awesome well, lit had two really good records, right? Like that's I mean, they, they have like four or five records total. I didn't actually do the research, sorry. But A Place in the Sun and Atomic are flawless records, in my opinion. Yeah, I think Lit's a pretty good band. <laughs> I'm coming at this from a pretty unique perspective, actually, Scott. I produce a podcast called Chris Makes a Podcast that is a songwriting podcast where we have artists come on and talk about the writing and recording and release of a defining song from their career. Well, by the time our episode that we're making right this moment comes out, the lit episode is going to come out where they talk about my own worst enemy. So I was actually on the call where the two brothers, AJ and Jeremy Popoff of lit 
talk about the writing of this song. So I feel like I have a unique perspective of this song that we can get into. I want to hear about that. Go listen to uh, the Krista Makes a Podcast episode about Lit, My Own Worst Enemy, that will be out by the time this episode's out. But the one little piece I, I will give you is that that opening riff, the da 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 which is just one of those guitar riffs that sounds like it has always existed like it it came from the sky and the, <laughs> and and lit were just the the people that channeled it and turned it into a song you know doesn't it just sound like something that should exist yeah well it's funny because matt and i do horror movie night when we did our discussion of my best friends of vampire recently we were talking about tim buck three features so bright i gotta wear shades and i know that he and you had talked about the fact that that song feels like it has always existed and yeah, i feel right. like that i feel like the riff is very similar but also at the same time i lived through it coming out that sounds so like i'm so old like i'm not that old right but like the song is pretty ubiquitous and i remember it coming out and being like this is the best song i've ever heard you know like there were a couple defining songs for me like at around that time so this was 1999 right i think it was february 99 when this came out Right. I specifically remember a buddy of mine being like, hey, you need to listen to this band and listen to it and being like, this is amazing. It was the same feeling that I got when I heard Damn It by Blink-182 for the first time and sell out Real Big Fish. And then right. the other big one was actually Basket Case. Yeah. Hey, yeah. That, I mean, it is around that time. And well, the little tidbit that I wanted to give you that that I'll spoil this for my other podcast was that opening riff. It was I forget which one of the brothers, but had a car that when you started the car, that was the sound. They were emulating the sound of that car oh starting up like, like a type thing. And they, they tried to just recreate that sound on guitar. So that's actually a pretty cool way that our riff came about. I like that. That's very, for lack of a better way to put it, that's very uh, Bjork and Dancer in the Dark <laughs> sort of. Did you ever see that movie, Dancer in the Dark? I, I've seen enough of it, but not to like know what it is. But well, I don't quite know the, the conceit of it. Well, basically... She is a blind woman that works in a factory to try to feed her kid, and she's got the a very terrible life. But since she's blind, all of the th sounds in the factory and everything she does in life, the sounds turn into music in her head. That kind of relates to this. It's like it was a sound of a car that they reinterpreted as a guitar riff. So that reminded me of that. Great movie, by the way. You should, it's a Lars von Trier movie. Oh, uh, that's that doesn't sell me on it though. Oh, it I'm doesn't. Not, I'm not Listen, I do a podcast called Horror Movie Night where we watch schlocky horror movies every week. Do you think that I'm a fan of Lars von Trier? Like, <laughs> come on now. Because his movies are pretty horrifying <laughs> yeah but there's serious horror i like stuff okay. with aliens and you know like decapitations and stuff like that come on you, you've you been like, on the show you know yeah, this you like schlock well anyway i i, I highly recommend answer the dark but back to lit <laughs> yeah my <laughs> perspective on this was i was a little too cool for school at the time i think by the time lit came along i was into punk rock but i was very much Fat Records and Epitaph and as far as something that's on the radio, especially from a band that just seemed to like come out of nowhere. It's kind of the point that I made about, I listened to Matt on an episode rave about SR71 and I'm just like, fuck SR71, man. But that dude, SR71, we owe a lot to them. All right. Who does? Not me. <laughs> pop punkers? Like you're in a pop uh, punk band. 
No. Well, I mean, you're in a band that used to be pop punk. <laughs> SR71 was like the equivalent of like some dudes in a studio got together and made something that sounded like the bands. I owe nothing to that band. I talk a lot of shit on that band because I think they're I think they're trash. I think they're like. Well, no, I, I don't disagree. I think that yeah. the, the that right now is a really good song. When that record came out, I was so into that and American Hi-Fi Flavor of the Week. Those two songs were those those both of those records when I was in high school. I got those records and I was so stoked on the single, right? And then I heard the rest of the record and I was like, well, this was a waste of 15 fucking dollars. Yeah, it's very, it's for, formulaic, uh, sounds like it was made by producers who heard what was hot at that moment. Like right. I, as a, uh, whatever you want to call it, jaded punk fan at that time, like I hated those bands. <laughs> I want to tell you one thing though, is yeah. like, I grew up in a cornfield. All right. So I was the yeah. only kid that listened to punk rock in my school. And so I was listening to like epitaph bands. Like, you know, I, I lived and breathed all the bands from the compilations. Right. Absolutely. I loved the Hopeless Record bands because oh, yeah. the, like Dillinger 4 was my number one favorite band in high school. So, I mean, it's not like I wasn't, you know, I, 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 I had space to like both, you know, yeah, okay. lit and true punk rock. And I read some of the reviews of this record and they were absolutely blistering. Yeah. Well, dude, well, here's what I was getting at is like, I really disliked SR 71 and like, I don't know that American hi-fi song. I really didn't even really know it till after the fact, but that's beside the point. Yeah. I didn't like those bands, but lit. I liked this song and I was too cool. I was a little too cool at the time to like something that was on the radio from a band that I hadn't heard before. But that being said, I liked this song at that time. And I think that just really does show that like it overcame a dude. It was a little bit like I, and I wasn't that bad about that stuff. Like I liked sublime i liked no doubt i liked bands that were popular oh, dude but everybody liked sublime and no i mean i didn't like sublime but i was i mean and i still think that no doubt's a really great band or they were at one time here's here's the thing that people that may be a little bit younger than us might not realize about that time frame is that everything was punk rock or you know like pop punk because green day made it so available and so mainstream that every band on MTV was at least aping some of that aesthetic. And so for you to be like, yeah, I liked some of those bands that kind of had that were a little bit edgier, a little bit like, you know, true quote unquote punk rock. I think that people might not realize the fact that it was everywhere at the time, you know? Yeah. And I, here, here's here's what I will say to defend a younger me. A me right now doesn't care about any of that stuff, really. Like, <laughs> uh, But a me in 1999, it was more that if a band was all of a sudden on MTV and the radio, and me, a dude who loved music and like would dive into every... like underground uh, band and and whatever if i had never heard of them and all of a sudden they were huge i was i was like what the fuck like what is this where did this come from how would how would i a guy who loves music not know about this which would which would turn me off to a band like sr71 like i never saw sr71 on like some tour that came through pittsburgh like opening for uh, a bigger band so that instantly made me like not respect the band. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, it's serious though. Like it made me feel like that band didn't pay their dues. So it really would take 
a great song to overcome that feeling. So that all comes back around to, despite the fact that I had never heard of Lit, I still like this song. And I think that's a testament to the fact that it's a, it's a great song. It's, it's a great riff. It's a great chorus. I, and I and my bandmates really liked this band, at least like, at least like the hits. You know, we are considering them a one hit wonder for purposes of this show because this was the song that crossed over and, and you heard everywhere. And, and they did have Miserable, which was also like an alternative hit. Mm-hmm. But this is a really good band. Uh, I will definitely give them that that credit that I wouldn't give to SR71 or like one of those <laughs> oh, other bands. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to like lump them all together. I yeah. literally just it, it was because they were, you know, around the same time. That's all. Right. And yeah, I did I did see what you're saying here about the the reviews weren't that great, but at the same time like okay, so I'm seeing this one review which would be described as scathing, I guess, but it it was from um Daniel Cat. Recipe of a one-hit wonder. Start with an Eve 6 slash Harvey Danger style power pop that's already been done to death. Turn the guitars way up, turn the creative way down, and what you're left with is a weak collection of songs that are listenable but bland. This particular collection is from a band called Lit, and the aforementioned one hit is My Own Worst Enemy, a song that's great because it's simple and short. However, that song has endured. Like, it, it, it's, it's lived on. And, you know, if I was Lit and I read that, I'd be like, yeah, fuck this guy. But at the same time, I'd be like, okay, he's saying the song's great. And it is like, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's not doing something we've never heard before, but it's also catchy as hell and it's relatable and it's got a great riff and it's well-produced. It's, it's slick production. It's, it's memorable. So yeah, you could talk shit on it. It's not. Radiohead, but it's a great song. I will give credit where credit's due every time, especially now. Maybe not 1999, but uh, <laughs> but I will right now say this is a great song. There's some other stuff about this record in general that Matt and I were going back and forth on. So first of all, the review that really stuck with me wasn't the one that, that you read for us. It was the one where it said something like, we went from Dead Kennedys to this. Or how did we get from Dead Kennedys to this? And I was like, oh my fucking God, that is so mean. <laughs> so mean. Yeah, another thing is that like, I doubt that Lit was calling themselves punk. They were not calling themselves pop punk. They were an alternative band. And so, I mean, they were, you know, their brush strokes were very punk rock, but they did not have the punk rock aesthetic. They had, they were doing the swing revival look. Actually, they all had, you know, like spiked hair, big sideburns. <laughs> shirts with flames on them. Flames on them. You know, they were, they were uh, bowling shirts. They wore bowling shirts and they wore like pleated slacks and shit and like tall Doc Martens and stuff like that. And they all they wanted to talk about was girls and cars. And I'm talking about like classic cars. So they're more like a rockabilly kind of band instead of, I mean, from their aesthetic, they were, they were kind of like that Las Vegas rock and roll aesthetic. And so for me to go back, like, of course I like them because I liked punk rock, but I never, even at the time, I never thought of them as a punk rock band. So for a critic to like totally take a crap all over them and be like, the Dead Kennedys would be so disappointed in you. I mean, first of all, dead, the Dead Kennedys weren't that great to begin with, and they weren't trying to be. And punk rock is not good music from like a, a technical perspective. It's never been about that. So 
Like, shut the fuck up, guy. I, I absolutely hate critics. The thing I did want to talk about was the fact that My Own Worst Enemy hit 51 on the Hot 100 and Miserable only hit 117. But I also found that I found that there was a Billboard chart of some sort where My Own Worst Enemy did hit number one. And it stayed on there. The thing is, is that when you look at different statistics and things like that, Miserable hit number three in the modern rock charts. And I don't know where My Own Worst Enemy hit. I think it's very weird because I thought of them as a huge band. And then when Matt was, when I, Matt said, do you want to do the show? And I said, I've been waiting, you know, but also I have no idea what's a one hit wonder that I would be interested to talk about because I sure don't want to talk about Tim Buck three. And so he was like, you know, well, lit's on the list. And I said, well, I'll take it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like the Get down! The wrath of the buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The wrath of the buzzard. P-R-O-H files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. There's so many things that that I have to say. One, yeah, I agree about whoever. I don't know what critic said that, what you said, but that's like an idiotic take. It's a very idiotic because, yeah, there is a difference between sex pistols and what how people throw away, throw around the word punk like, you know, my band punchline is described as as punk band, but we're not. We're a pop rock band. Like that's very obvious. We're not. Yeah. We're not protest music. We're not. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe in our personal lives, we're rallying against the government, but in general, uh, not our music. You know, so that part of it is that that's that's idiotic right off the bat. Like punk is has been used since uh, that that word's been used even since the eighties to describe a certain guitar tone sound and it's sort of aggression in the way you play your instruments and not necessarily the ethos that has long been misused. So yeah, that's an idiotic take on lit. And then the other thing that I was going to say, when you're looking at all the charts and everything that sometimes the, the chart positions aren't really what matters. What more matters sometimes is the legacy of the song. And regardless of where it landed on the charts at that moment, whether it still gets played like that lit my own worst enemy definitely still gets played on like the X in Pittsburgh or, or, (laughs) or whatever your, your radio station is. That's like that. And, and it's, it stood the test of time. People still know that song, whereas people might not remember miserable. You know, so and no one remembers anything. I mean, nobody that is younger than me that didn't have this record in their disc man probably remembers anything except for my own worst enemy. Right. So sometimes whether it was that it was on a soundtrack to something or it was on a TV show or it just the fact that it still gets played on terrestrial radio like that can make something a one hit wonder in hindsight. 
you know? And th- I think this song is like that. This, this song s- s- sort of stood up. I-, I think that's the case with this one, regardless of the fact that it was only whatever, 51 on the uh, Billboard yeah. charts at the time. I want to tell you one quick story, an anecdote about this song. And it's a recent anecdote. So I think it it is a nice dovetail to what you're talking about with it, with Lit and their legacy using My Own Worst Enemy, right? I had a very short-lived pop punk cover band and we only played like two shows. And it was really fun because it was like, oh, these people actually remember Alkaline Trio songs. And, you know, everybody was singing along, you know, and 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 we would, uh, we opened up both shows with My Own Worst Enemy. And holy shit, does everybody know that song? Right. Like everybody's, you know, drunk and screaming the chorus. And I just, in all of my years of doing live music, I think that that song more than any other cover song has the ability to get people to give a shit about your band. It's really cool to see that everybody knows all the lyrics because my gauge of if a song is good is if people remember at least half of the second verse (laughs) and, and people still remember at least half of the second verse from this song. Right. I mean, I'd have to think about it for a second, but I I think I know it's not like I listened to this song a lot or anything, but I think I know the lyrics to it. And that's impressive. Honestly, I didn't have this CD. I liked the song. I didn't have the CD. I think I know the lyrics just from hearing this song enough times in life. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I never at any point like sat down with the lyrics in front of me inside of the CD booklet and read them or whatever, but I've just heard it enough times in my life that I think I know them. And that's kind of, it's pretty impressive. This band does have a knack for writing great pop rock songs. And I, I almost forgot that song Ziploc was on here too. And that's another, oh, yeah. it's a, it's a polished, great pop rock song. That's what it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's it's, there's nothing wrong with if that's what you write that writing it. <laughs> so, I mean, for people that don't know, and also Chris, you may not know this, but like I was in a death metal band for a decade and like, I can tell you how hard it is to get people to give a shit. Right. But if you play cover stuff, I mean, it, and, and I also did like a fifties rockabilly kind of thing. And, and that was like 60% originals, 40% covers. And when you play covers, it makes people, it ingratiates yourself to people because people are already comfortable with that material. And so they don't have to sit there and think, how am I supposed to react to this? Right, right. Yeah, and and I, I think that's valid. I do think it's lame if people would go see a cover band before they'd go see an original band. But what I would say to the original band if they're bitching about that is, yo, work harder and make more people hear your music. And then that won't be the case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be the response that I, I might have to that. You sound so conservative right now. You're just giving me the bootstraps no, logic no, right I, now. I didn't think you were necessarily saying that. I didn't think you were saying, uh, if anything, I was saying like hypothetical complaints. Cover shows are really fun. Um, but at the same time, they're the potato chip of music. Yeah. You know, there's no nutritional value because you're resting on the work that other people did to, and the producers did to make a really fucking good song. Like for scrappy small bands, like the ones that I've been in, it's always nice because you do get that endorphin boost because people are having fun and you have that communal feeling. But at the same time, it feels like a bit of a slap in the face because you're like, I think that the music that I make is yeah. equally valid and valuable 
but people aren't going to care about your music immediately. And, and, and it, a lot of music is just repetition. You got to have, first of all, your material has to be repetitive because that's why, you know, those earworm songs get stuck in your head after one listen. Like I could, I can sing any Katy Perry song after two verses. Like it's just every song, like I, every song that comes out. I mean, it's because she's got really good producers and really good writers, but at the same time, I don't gravitate towards that music because it gets stale very quickly. And so I do like material that is a little bit more, te- a, a lot more technical. But, you know, I, as far as Lit is concerned, I think that they kind of did a nice tightrope walk of really accessible music and lyrics and vocal melodies. And I think that they also had a little bit of an edge, less than Blink-182 at the time, um, because Blink would have been probably writing Enema of the State. I think Enema of the State was out by then. But September, uh, oh yeah, you're right. That would have been September of 98. Yeah, yeah I remember that because I was a sophomore in, co- in high school. So, But at the same time, that was a huge departure from their previous material, which, I mean, Damn It is a huge song, but it's not really nearly as, I, I think that so much more of their material on Dude Ranch is more my style and less accessible, um, which is why it took something like Animal of the State for them to get really popular. But as far as Lit is concerned, I felt like when they, when A Place in the Sun came out, it was a really big selling album. One, for the fact that My Own Worst Enemy is very catchy and very repetitive, but also I think that the record itself is very, I'm trying to think of the term. I'm thinking in like musical terms, you know, compression takes the highs and lows out of things. And so it's a very palatable record in that sense where there's no really bad song on it, but also it kind of peaks at my own worst enemy and maybe miserable. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think it appeals to the masses. I think that there was enough interesting things melodically and musically on it to put it, it it was enough that, that, that I, I like that it's a little bit of a, a a punk snob at the time, which I don't mean to make myself sound like too much of that, but like, like, you know, you're compared to, once again, you you bring up Blink who I, I loved Blink at the time. And part of loving them was seeing them come up. I liked them from their first album and I would see them come through on tours. And of course I knew who they were Mm -hmm. and everyone knew who they were. So I followed their their journey and I was with them along the way and then a band like lit it's like who who are you guys well you're you're lucky though because you don't want to listen to tripping life fantastic their first record because it's just all bad right. <laughs> they, they they got a really good producer for this record and he told them to cut the fat out of this this and this helped them along the way and they made in my opinion an untouchable slice of like late 90s yeah. it definitely rock. when I hear you know, these songs. Yeah. It sounds like the late nineties. I used this example, no rain by blind melon. And it's like, when you hear that opening riff of no rain, it's like, this is nineties music. <laughs> it'd be like, it'd be oh, like yeah. Alanis yeah. Morissette ironic or something. And you're just like, this is mm-hmm. the nineties. And this that's when you hear that opening riff, it's like, this is 1999 and you're just instantly back at that whatever high school party or college party or whatever age you were at that time. And it it puts you right back there. And not all songs from that time are going to instantly do that. But I think that as soon as I hear that riff, it's almost like I'm at some party that I wasn't even actually at. (laughs) 
I'm just there. I'm at this. I'm at like a lit music video that that it's almost like my mind is creating a party that I wasn't even at. And uh, you know, a big part of this too was that the, that bowling alley music video. You know, you still see mm-hmm. that music video when you hear this song, and yeah, you see the guy wearing the flame shirt. You see the dice in the mirror. You see like all these. This image that they had just goes right along. You see the guy with the long goatee uh, in a braid, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Right? So that was one of the brothers. That was the guitar playing brother. Yeah. They had a, a cool thing. They're a cool band and they're they're good. They're really good. The guy has a good voice. And, you know, when, when we had him on the podcast that I produced, they were talking about how they played at Woodstock 99, <laughs> which, oh, you know, yeah. for, for all of its uh, whatever, I mean, it was no Woodstock 94, but <laughs> Woodstock 99 before Limp Biscuit burned the place down or whatever the hell happened at that thing. They talked about how when they would play this song, they stopped they stopped the music and the whole crowd sang the still burning. And then they, they kicked back <sighs> in and, and uh, I found a clip of that to put into the episode. Actually, it's it's like the, all of 1999 knew this song and could sing along to the entire <laughs> thing, which is pretty cool, regardless of it only peaking at number 51. When you take a look at 1999 and you look at what else was going on, it's like at that time that my own worst enemy peaked songs like Sixpence. None the richer kiss me was in the charts. Mm. No scrubs was in the charts. Uh, <laughs> I want it that way was in the charts. Uh, Live in La Vida Loca and and the number one song at the time was Jennifer Lopez. If you had my love, um, so a lot of pretty memorable songs at the time and might be what kept my own worst enemy from being higher than number fifty one. It's surprising it didn't crack the top forty. Actually, when you look at that year in general. You got some real, real garbage. So, you know, what <laughs> What may have made this song stand out even more is the fact that, like, some of the biggest songs of the year are, like, some total trash, like Eiffel 65 Blue and, like, Oof. Lou Bega Mambo Number no. 5. Uh, like, those are some <laughs> of the biggest songs of that year. So, like, yeah, it's almost like some of the music that was the biggest was I put both of those songs in the category of novelty music like yeah these aren't songs that are gonna i don't know songs that people are gonna take seriously and like dive into the eiffel 65 album and things like no no so that may have paved the way a little bit for a song like this to in retrospect cut through a little bit more and uh, oh also like kid rock was popular at that time like no 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 so i'm down with lit man i like lit i i i like i like what they were able to do for for music at that time and and i have nothing but uh fond memories to listening to this song before we wrap this episode up we it's probably pretty obvious what we're gonna say i guess we we have to officially (laughs) say it is this song a one-hit blunder or did it bring the one-hit thunder it brought the one-hit thunder my friend i i would i would have to agree this is pure thunder it lives on and it's a great song and it's it's a great band they did go country in recent years which was a little surprising i i don't know i they, they were still pretty decent at country i i don't get into country enough to be like yeah really psyched about a country album, <laughs> but I will give you this little tidbit as well <laughs> that I, that I learned. 
uh, that you can learn a little bit more about if you check out the episode with Lit of uh, the other podcast is that they are working on a new album that is back to... Oh, thank goodness. Yes. yes. <laughs> back, back to what they do best, in my opinion. And I'm sure it's going to be good. I have I have nothing but positive feedback for them when it comes out. Because if they're going... I mean, like, even if it's not that great, it's going to still be them trying. And if they can't recapture the magic, I would still love to be a part of that attempt for them, you know? I bet you it's going to have some bangers on it. Uh, I think I think AJ's got a, a really cool. He's got that cool like voice that kind of sounds like he probably smokes some cigarettes, but <laughs> but but also also can carry a tune, you know, like yeah. And, and you know what was really great about them in the '90s was that they were one of the few bands on the radio that he was a, a straight baritone. Like yeah, even yeah. Billy Joe is a little bit of a tenor. And as a baritone myself, it was so easy to sing along with Lit that I couldn't help but be happy about it. That's an interesting point, man. Well, all of my favorite bands are fucking tenor at the time. They were all tenors. Like Matt Skiba is definitely a tenor. Um, I would say that Dan Andriano is probably a baritone. And that's why I always went more towards his songs with Alkaline Trio. You know, I, I think that Mark is a baritone. I think that Tom is a, a, a tenor. Um, that's why I always like Mark's songs better. You know, I, I pretty much almost every band on the radio is a tenor or a tenor too. Like the, a lot of them are very above and beyond what I can sing comfortably. And that never ingratiates me to a band like it does when I'm like, oh, I can sound like these guys. Right. And it's always been that way for me. Man, that's an interesting point that I never thought about with this song or just I don't really think about about songs in general too much is it basically being in a range where you can sing along like pretty much anyone, whether they're on pitch or not, they can at least feel in their head like they're singing along and yeah. sounding mm -hmm. good. And, you know, some of those songs that are up there high, it's not so easy to sing along. So that's a pretty good point, man. That's, that's <laughs> there, I've never been able to sing any Chiodos songs. How's yeah, that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, man. This is, this is fun. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure to be a part of uh, a part of one hit thunder. And uh, you know, you're going to come back and watch some schlock on horror movie night. <laughs> I would love to, I'd love to watch ice cream man three or something. <laughs> <laughs> This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me is Honey, This Is Nothing New off Punchline's album, Lion. Pick up a copy at punchlion.com. And watch the new Punchline music special currently on Amazon Prime. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. Network. 
Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.